The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles to Psalm 33. We're going to have some fun tonight as we continue our series that we're calling Heart Cries. And the title of my message for you is How to Praise God in a Pandemic. How to Praise God in the Midst of a Pandemic. Those two things seem to be contradictory in nature. Praise and pandemonium, but we're gonna learn tonight how to praise God in the midst of a pandemic. And my goal for all of us is simple. I want to simply inspire worship. And the fuel that I plan on using to ignite that spark of praise in our hearts is Psalm 33. Now, all the Psalms were written as songs, and, and Psalm 33 is certainly no exception. Um, it, it was penned originally as a song, and, and what that means is sometimes with music, it, it's not written primarily for you to dissect it and to parse it out and tease it apart. You're just supposed to walk away with a bigger picture or feeling of love in your heart or wherever that music is leading you. And so I, I don't want to bog us down too much in details. I want to just think big picture, 30,000 foot view about what God wants us to do. And it's really a simple message tonight. God wants us to praise and worship him. In fact, the word psalm comes from a, a Hebrew word that means at its root, praise. And so the Psalms, it would be helpful to think of them as Hebrew or the Israelites collective songbook. And for the Israelites, when they would go to the various feasts that peppered their annual calendars or when they were running around the house doing chores or when they were running errands or when they were hosting backyard barbecues, they would open to the book of Psalms and they would pull out these songs and it would just draw them into worship. Come to think of it, that's probably why so many of us are drawn to the book of Psalms. Because music, it's powerful. We're, none of us are immune to the effects of music. You know how it is. Music can instantly transport, transport you back to a, a different time or era or place. Music can move you to tears. It can pump you up. Music does all kinds of things to us. And so that's why the Psalms are so powerful. And I think it also speaks volumes, considering that the, the book of Psalms sits right smack dab in the middle of our Bibles positionally, and it also takes up the most real estate in our Bibles by volume. It's as if by doing that, God was wanting to communicate to, to, communicate to us the, the place of prominence and priority that praise has or ought to have in our lives. And even just a cursory glance at scriptures reveals the evidence of God's love for praise. For example, the book of Job tells us that in the beginning when God was laying the foundations of the earth, that the morning stars sang together with the angels. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And then later on, when Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Luke's gospel tells us how the heavens broke in half and, and erupted in praise with the angels declaring together in chorus, hold on, 
A multitude, um, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace and goodwill towards men. And then the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back a second time, that the, the hills are going to, to bow and then the valleys will rise and the trees of the field will clap their hands. And then even though we're not giving, given a whole lot of detail about what's gonna happen when we get to heaven, one thing we do know for sure is that it's gonna be a place that is filled with praise and worship. Like there's this one really powerful scene in Revelation chapter five where we see this multitude of 10,000 times 10,000 saints worshiping Jesus and saying, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. The picture is comprehensive from the opening pages to Genesis to the closing pages of Revelation and everywhere in between, the scriptures paint a picture of praise. And all of that leads us to Psalm 33. Now, we aren't told who the author of this particular Psalm is, but perhaps it's just as well. Because at the end of the day, the one the author wants us to focus our attention on is the Lord, and that becomes immediately apparent as we're gonna read through it in just a moment. Beyond that, we're not given a title for this psalm as some of the other psalms have titles that go along with them, but if we were to give a title to this psalm, I would call it a song of jubilant praise, because that's what it is. It is a triumphant declaration of praise to our God and Father for who he is and for all that he does in our lives. With that, let's go ahead and, and read the first couple of verses, then we'll go back and talk about them. Here's what the psalmist writes. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It's fitting for the upright to praise him. Praise the Lord with the harp. Make music to him on the ten-stringed lyre. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully and shout for joy. So here's the first point of our message this evening. What we learn from these verses is that what God desires from us is praise and worship. And the author lays that out in no uncertain terms, right? I mean, in the first three verses, we find no less than six different variations of commands, all exhorting us to praise the Lord in some way, shape, or form. He tells us to sing joyfully to the Lord and to praise the Lord, to make music to the Lord, to sing to the Lord a new song, to play skillfully, and to sing with joy. Six different commands driving home the same point, like a drumbeat, the psalmist is telling us, praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him. By the way, this represents the first time in the Psalms where musical accompaniment is tied to the worship of God. But the thing I really want you to note as we consider these verses in the beginning of the psalm together is this. Notice how he's telling us where to direct our music. He says, sing not just in general, but sing to the Lord. Make music to the Lord. Write new songs of praise for the Lord. He is the audience. And this is what distinguishes just music in general, which can be beautiful and powerful from worship. And worship is what God is really after. So what's worship? Simply put, worship takes beautiful melodies and combines those with 
powerful, God-honoring lyrics. And when those two things come together, it forms this powerful symphony of praise. And notice, too, how he makes a point of saying we should play skillfully unto the Lord. Now, when some of you read that, perhaps you say, well, I guess that excludes me. I mean, I don't have a lick of musical talent, and when I sing, it sounds like somebody is strangling a cat, right? Well, hold on, not so fast. Uh, uh, musical ability notwithstanding, notice what he says next, and shout for joy. Now, I don't care how musically tone deaf you are, all of us can shout for joy. So let me just hear you say, praise the Lord. All right, all right. Five of us were in here and we said it, and I'm trusting that you did on the other side of that screen as well. But we can all shout to the Lord, and this, friends, is what God wants. He desires praise and worship. I'm reminded of that conversation that Jesus had in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. And in the course of things, he told her that what God really truly desires is worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth, with their heart and with their head. And notice too how the psalmist doesn't put any qualifiers in there for us. He doesn't say, do this when you feel like it, or when the song hits you just right, or when the mood strikes. No, he just says, praise him and do it joyfully and do it musically and do it loudly. So what God wants from us is praise and worship, but why? Why should we praise him? That's the next question that he addresses. I mean, have you ever thought about why we conduct our services the way we do in church? We begin with praise and worship, and then we end with praise and worship too. It it kind of bookends church. So why do we do that? I mean, is it just so that the people coming in late, you know, can find their seat without interrupting things or... Or do we do it so that the pastor can have just a little more time to go over his notes? Or, or, or do we do it simply because that's just the way it's always been done and it's tradition and so we're just kind of following tradition? Why do we sing corporately like this? I mean, it is a bit strange if you think about it. There aren't really too many contexts out there where people gather for the purpose of corporately singing together. You might say, well, what about concerts? Uh, Maybe a little bit, but for the most part, when you go to a concert, you know, you're going there to to listen and to receive more than you are going there to sing. I mean, outside of like Disney princess movies and maybe musicals, the only other places where I think people sing regularly, we sing happy birthday at birthday parties and maybe the national anthem at sporting events. But outside of that, The only other place where people gather together on a regular basis to corporately sing songs is church. And it's always been that way. I mean, the church is and always has been a singing community. Remove the the worship of God from the church of God and it ceases to become the church. Just listen to these instructions that the apostle Paul passed on to the church that he planted in Colossae. He said, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, amen to that. Teach and admonish one another in all wisdom and with gratitude in your hearts. Sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to God. There you have it. Our faith, folks, is inescapably musical. But again, the question, why? 
Well, thankfully, the psalmist doesn't leave us to guess at the answer. He tells us plainly in verse one why we're to sing joyfully to the Lord. He says, it's fitting for the upright to praise him. <laughs> Nothing, you know, hidden about that answer. It's so straightforward. Why do we praise him? Because it's fitting. It makes sense. It's right. It's becoming. Asking a Christian why they praise God is, is like asking a fish why it swims or asking a bird why it flies. We were created for worship and we find our fulfillment in worshiping our creator. Now this is so key and so important and why so many people are missing out because they don't get that they were designed for worship. I mean, there's a lot of things in this world that don't make sense. I've been going over this list and compiling it since I found out I was gonna be te teaching this. Here are a list of things that don't make sense. Number one, why when I transport goods by a car, it's called a shipment, and when I transport goods by a boat, it's called cargo? Doesn't make sense. For that matter, why do my feet smell and my nose runs? Seems like it should be the other way around. Thank you, Ray Bentley, for that. Dad jokes keep coming here, folks. How about this one? Why is it that if someone tells you there are a billion, in the sky, a billion stars in the sky, you'll believe them? But if they tell you the, the paint on the wall is still wet, you have to touch it to make sure. <laughs> What's the deal with this? There's a lot in this world that doesn't make sense. But in the midst of a world where so much doesn't make sense, it's nice to know that there's at least one thing that makes perfect sense praising and worshiping God. It's what we ought to do. It's fitting, it's right for the upright in heart to praise the Lord. So we've talked about what we're called to do, praise the Lord. And we've talked about why we're supposed to do it. It's fitting, it's just right. But how, how are we supposed to praise the Lord? <laughs> and on this point, interestingly, I find it noteworthy that the psalmist leaves a lot of room for variation. He doesn't give us a whole lot of specified details about what does and does not constitute music that God finds acceptable. Now this is of course significant because, and I'm not sure if you're aware of this or not, but there are some people out there that have pretty strong opinions about what kind of music God actually likes. <laughs> and they're really free with sharing those opinions. This music falls under the category of God honoring worship and this is all music from the devil. You know what I mean? And, and this is nothing new, right? I mean, it's been around for centuries, these worship wars or these so-called worship wars. In fact, as far back as the 1500s they were going on. At that time, there was a guy by the name of Martin Luther and he pastored this church and he wanted to introduce some new music to his congregation. But he didn't like what he was hearing, and so he went out to the bars and the taverns, and he borrowed some of the melodies that were popular songs of the time and era, and he put in new God-honoring lyrics, and he introduced those to his church. As you can imagine, this caused a great controversy in the church, and there were a lot of churches back in Martin Luther's day that wouldn't even sing his songs because they were too secular, too radical, too edgy. Songs like... A mighty fortress is our God. You know, songs that are really on the edge like that. <laughs> Ironically, today, those are the only songs that some churches will sing, right? 
and, and, and it's songs that have drums and electric guitars that are considered to be satanically inspired. At the end of the day, though, the psalmist doesn't really tell us how we're supposed to do it. He just steers clear of the whole debate. And he tells us plainly and simply to make sure that we do it joyfully, that we do it musically, that we do it in all kinds of ways. And then notice in verse three, he says, do it in new ways with new songs. And I love this one. I love the old songs. I mean, one of my all time favorite songs is Come Thou Fount. But I also think it's important, and the psalmist would agree with me, that it's important to include newer worship songs within our repertoire. And here's why I think he said that. You know as well as I do that the more you do something, the more familiar that pattern becomes, the more likely you are to end up doing it without even thinking about it. We all have this tendency, we create these muscle memories and we begin to do things by rote and routine without engaging in the lyrics. And just to prove my point, have you ever driven someplace maybe to work or some, maybe drove home and then when you parked the car and started to get out, you realized that you had no memory of actually driving there? <laughs> if you have done that, you probably shouldn't have been driving, right? But we've all done that. It's just like you check out and you put it in autopilot because you've done it so many times. And I think the danger for us as Christians is that we can end up doing that same thing with our worship of God. Like I read this one study that said, after you've sung the same lyrics about 30 times, you stop thinking about them. And I don't know the science on that. I'm sure the number varies from person to person, but it speaks to a point that rings true, doesn't it? We all have this tendency to fall into familiar patterns and routines, which is why on no less than six different occasions. The Psalms tell us to offer up a new song of praise to God. We need new forms and new expressions and new lyrics and new melodies to find praise to God. Why? Because he is infinitely good and there are an infinite amount of ways to bring him glory and praise. We do it in new ways. And then the only other thing he says is make sure you do it loud, <laughs> which I love. He says, shout for joy. If you're like me, there's an involuntary response that you have every time your favorite team scores a touchdown or your favorite player makes a basket and you just, you cheer loudly. Why? It's involuntary. It just happens naturally. If you're not a sports fan, every time your grandchild does something cute, you just erupt in praise. Why? Because it's natural. And the same thing ought to be true with our worship. So let's review. What are we called to do? Worship and praise our creator. Why do we worship him? Because it's fitting for the upright to do so. And how are we supposed to worship him? We do it in various ways. We do it with joy in our hearts. We do it with musical instruments. If you've got a 10 string lyre, now might be the time to pull that out. And we do it with shouts of joy. Now, as we move into the rest of the Psalm, it's really just meant to serve as fuel to motivate more praise to overflow from our hearts. Specifically, the psalmist is going to lay out three motivations for worshiping the Lord. Let's go ahead and read in verses four and five, the first one. He says, for the word of the Lord is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. Somebody on the other side of that screen say, amen. Or if you're on the chat, type in amen. 
The Lord loves righteousness and justice, and the earth is full of his unfailing love. What I see here is a picture of God's goodness. That's what the psalmist is pointing to. And he's saying this should fuel or motivate your worship. I love what Psalm 145 verse 9 says. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. We did this earlier, but around here we like to say it like this. God is good all the time, and yes, these guys said it. I think there were some of you who didn't. Try it again. God is good all the time. Okay, if the person next to you still didn't say, you have my permission to hit them with a pillow. So God is good. He's good to everyone. He doesn't withhold his goodness from certain people. And we see that here. He's, he's faithful and true, the psalmist says. And so is his word. I love what Psalm 19.7 says. The law of the Lord is good, giving new life to the soul. So the Lord is good. His word is good. And the gifts that he bestows on us are good. James 1.17 says that every good and perfect gift comes down from him, the father of lights. So every good thing in your life comes to you and you experience and have because of God's goodness in your life. And then notice what the psalmist says next in verse five, the whole earth is full of his unfailing love. There is an endless amount of expressions of God, God's goodness or unfailing love that we can find in this world. Now, now, the Hebrew word there for unfailing love is an important one. You might want to jot this down. It's the word hesed, H-E-S-E-D, hesed. And it's, it's an important word in this psalm in particular he points to it as the main motivation or fuel source for worship. He talks about it in verse five, and then he mentions it again in verse 18 when he says, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his hesed or unfailing love. And then he mentions it a third time in verse 22 where he says, may your hesed, your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. So this, this theme of God's unfailing love, his goodness, his hesed, it becomes a driving factor in our fuel for worship. But as we pan back and look at the whole of scripture, we see that this is a mega theme, not just in this Psalm, but in the whole of the Old Testament and quite literally in all of the Bible. Hesed, it's, it's a word that is hard to pin down, hard to define using any one English word, which is why it's translated a variety of different ways in different versions of the Bible. Sometimes it's translated as kindness or faithfulness or mercy or goodness or loyalty. And at other times it gets translated as unfailing or steadfast love. But when you take all those words and you piece them together, what you walk away with is a comprehensive picture of God's character. It's who God is. Which is why when the Lord introduced himself to Moses at the burning bush, he, he said this, he said, I'm the Lord God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, abounding in hesed. Our God abounds in hesed. So when the psalmist tells us that the earth is filled with God's hesed, he's telling us that God's goodness has overflowed to us. So where do we see that? Where do we see evidence of God's abounding goodness. Well, for one thing, in the most general sense, 
One of the ways his goodness has overflowed towards us is in the way that he has fine-tuned all of creation to support and sustain life on this planet. Let me, let me explain. Scientists will sometimes talk about what they refer to as the Goldilocks effect or the Goldilocks zone. And you remember that story from when we were kids and how Goldilocks, you know, went into the forest and found the home of the three little bears and she sat down at one chair and it was too big and the other one was too small, but then she found the one that was just right and she ate that poor bear's bowl of porridge and, and so the story goes. And scientists use that story to talk about how our world has been specifically and uniquely, they wouldn't use the word design, but, but adjusted to support and sustain life. For example, we reside in this orbit around the sun that is at the perfect distance. It doesn't get too hot, it's not too cold, we're not too far from the sun, and we're not too close to the sun. If we were any further away, just a little bit further away, all the water would freeze and we wouldn't be able to support and sustain life. If we were any closer, we'd burn up. But God has us situated just so. We could just as easily talk about the tilt of the earth. The earth sits at a tilt of 23 and a half degrees. And if that were any more severe in either direction, the earth would become uninhabitable. But we could also talk about the distance of the moon to the earth and how that affects the world's tides and keeps things clean. And we could even talk as much about the, the other planets and their orbits around the sun, including Saturn and Jupiter. And if those things were different or the asteroid belt weren't placed just where it is, that life wouldn't exist on this earth. I mean, God hasn't just fine-tuned our planet, but it turns out the entire solar system has been uniquely fitted just for our benefit. But God's goodness, it's not just something that can be observed in a general way, looking out at the stars, but we could also personalize it too. I mean, just think about all of the hundreds of different things that your body is doing for you right now on an involuntary basis that are keeping you alive. And we never even give any of these things a second thought. He, God takes care of all this stuff for us. For example, Right now, your body is breathing for you, maintaining your temperature and hormonal balance, growing new cells for you, digesting food for you. It's converting stored energy from fat to blood sugar, and it's repairing da damaged cells for you. And we're still just getting started. Check this out. Did you know that approximately six trillion reactions are taking place in every cell of your body every second of every day? By the time... This day is done and 24 hours has passed. Your heart will have beat approximately 100,000 times. You didn't have to do anything. Here, try this. Take your finger and touch your nose. Now take your finger and touch your neighbor's nose. You, you can't touch your neighbor's nose. That's not allowed. Touch your nose. Okay, no one's looking. You can do it. Great. Even something as simple as this, it requires 400 chemical reactions firing across tens of thousands of synapses all at once. Incredible. God is so good. Take a breath. That involves hundreds of complex bodily processes that we can't even fathom. And we breathe 23,000 times a day. By my count, that's 23,000 thank yous that we owe to God every single day. And that's just for keeping us breathing. As we've seen, he's doing a lot more than that. In other words, his goodness towards us abounds. 
But it's not just general, it's not just personal, it's, it's, it's spiritual too. And this is what takes his goodness in our lives and transforms it into overflowing praise from our hearts. When we see his good not, goodness, not just in a general way, but when we begin to truly personalize it and we see that his said, his love, isn't just something that exists out there, but it's something that has been realized in here. David talked about in Psalm 23 how surely your goodness, your said, and your mercy, they are following me all the days of my life. And it's like God's goodness is chasing us down. And when we allow ourselves to be caught by it, caught in the net of his grace, that's when our lives spontaneously erupt into praise. God's has said it's everywhere. His grace abounds, his goodness overflows. But the psalmist isn't done yet. You see, he's told us about God's goodness in verses four and five, but in verses six through nine, he tells us about God's greatness, which is the next motivation or fuel source for our worship. Look at verse six, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made their starry host by the breath of his mouth. He gathers the waters of the sea into jars. He puts the deep into storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the people of the world revere him. For, get this, he spoke and it came to be. He commanded and it stood firm. How great is our God? The psalmist points to God's creative power to make his case. He says God's power is so great that in verse nine, he spoke and it came to be. Now that's a different kind of creative power. We, we are created in God's image and after his likeness, so we have creative capacities as well. But when you or I create something, we take material that already exists and we remold it or we reshape it or we repurpose it and regurgitate it. But that's different than what the psalmist is describing here. He says, when God created the heavens and the earth, he spoke and he didn't use any outside tools or materials. He just used the power of the word of his voice or the voice of his word and that spoke everything into existence. So in Genesis 1.1, when it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, the Latin phrase to describe that is he created it ex nihilo or out of nothing. And that is power on a fathomless scale. I mean, just think about how big the universe is. Like right now, the Hubble telescope is out there floating some 353 miles above our atmosphere so it can get the most clear pictures of the furthest, most distant galaxies. One of the, the most furthest galaxies that it's sent back pictures to us of is one that they've called, the scientists at NASA call the faraway galaxy. By the way, kudos to our friends at NASA for coming up with that catchy name. The faraway galaxy. It's, it's also known as uh, GN-Z11, if that helps. But it's so far away that we can't even begin to fathom the distance. It's unfathomable, but here's the thing. As far away as that is, as soon as they big a, build a bigger telescope, we're just gonna see more galaxies. Why? Because the universe continues to grow and expand. And each time they bring back pictures of things that are further away, it just reveals an even greater God. God, he created all of it with his spoken word. It's incredible. 
But I love what Soren Kierkegaard once pointed out on this point. Soren Kierkegaard, that's right. Just dropping a little Soren Kierkegaard on you on a Wednesday night. He said the greatest display of God's power isn't that he was able to create something from nothing, but rather that he is able to make saints out of sinners. Ooh, praise the Lord on that. We've talked about God's goodness being fuel for our worship. We've talked about his greatness being fuel for our worship, but there's one more point that the psalmist makes that I'd like to bring to your attention. The third thing that he points to is God's gaze. God's gaze. Let me see if I can make that make sense. In verse 13, he says, from heaven, the Lord looks down and he sees all mankind. From his dwelling place, he watches all who live on the earth. He who forms the hearts of all, who considers everything they do. Now, jump down to verse 18. It says, the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees everything. Nothing escapes his gaze. Now, depending on how you're living your life, that's either an incredibly comforting thought or perhaps a very troubling thought, right? Because on the one hand, it means that nobody's getting away with anything. And those things that are done in secret now will be shouted from the rooftops later on. And there is coming a day when God is going to call men to account for the way that they've lived their lives. He sees it all. Nothing escapes his attention. But that's not the thrust of what the psalmist is saying here. He's not saying, you better watch out. You better not pout. Why? Because God's watching you and he's going to get you. Like, that's, that's the idea that a lot of us have with regards to this concept. God is gazing down on us and we think, oh no, he's like, he's like one of those cops with a radar gun just waiting for me to mess up so he can nail me with a ticket. But that's not the thrust of what the psalmist says. No, no, go back to verse 18. His eyes are on everybody. He sees everything, but the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him. Why? On those who help, uh, hope is in his unfailing love to deliver them from death and keep them alive in the famine. He's watching over you, not because he's mad at you, but because he's madly in love with you. You've got to see this. If you want your heart to erupt in praise, you need to get it through your head that God's not just mad at you, he's madly in love with you and, and he's watching over you in the same way that I used to watch over my kids when they were learning to take their first steps. And you just, you kind of hover over them and you've got your hands out and as soon as they fall, you're catching them or when they were more recently learning how to ride their bike and I would hold onto the seat and then I would kind of run alongside. That's, that's God with you. He's, he's watching over you because he loves you. Jesus said it like this. He goes, a couple of sparrows, they're sold for a penny or something like that, Matthew chapter 10. And God sees every one of those sparrows that falls to the ground. He's got a lot going on, but he attends the funeral of every sparrow, apparently. And then Jesus goes on to make this point. How much more then is your heavenly father going to take care of your needs? He loves you. He's looking out for you. He sees your hurts. He sees your heartbreak. He sees your tears. He sees your pain. He sees your dreams. He sees your desires. And, and his eyes are looking for those whose hearts are towards him, the Bible says. I love the verse in 2 Chronicles 16, 9. The eyes of the Lord, they run to and fro throughout the whole earth 
And the, the Lord is looking for those whose hearts are towards him in order that he might show himself strong on their behalf. God's eyes are looking to protect, to sustain, to bring us through the difficulties we encounter every day. So, so take heart, hope in his unfailing love. That's, that's the, the heartbeat of this whole psalm. The eyes of the Lord are especially on those whose hope is in his hesed, those who are clinging to his grace, not those who are perfect, not those who have it all figured out, not those who are righteous in their own eyes. No, his eyes are on those who cling to his grace and realize I'm no good, but you're a perfect God who sent his only begotten son to die on the cross in my place so that I might be made right in your eyes and be given the gift of eternal life through Jesus. We cling to his hesed. And as we cling to the cross where God's said was shown in its most potent form, our souls overflow with abounding praise. We begin to sing. We begin to make music. New songs arise. Songs of joy with shouts of joy. We grab our lyre and our harp or whatever and we begin to praise the Lord. Why? Because it's right. Birds fly, fish swim, Christians worship. We do it because it's right. We do it in all kinds of ways. We do it by laying down our life. It's our reasonable act and response of worship considering all that God has done. And our fuel is God's unfailing, never-ending, always abounding, has said, his love. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.